Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name's Jeff Gordonier, and my latest book is called Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. For more Cookery by the Book, follow me on Instagram. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share it with a friend. I'm always looking for new people to enjoy Cookery by the Book. Now on with the show. Before the holidays, Pete Wells wrote about you and New Year's resolutions on his Instagram. He wrote, realize that this book is not just a bunch of weird encounters with a famous chef, but actually a very convincing argument for moving into the unknown, entering dark rooms, even though you'll stub your toes, fighting complacency, knowing you can do better, painting yourself into corners so you'll have to invent a new way out, why potential resolutions are strewn over every page of this book like pine needles on the sidewalk on January 2nd. Do you see this book as a sort of an ode to resolutions? Yeah, I do. And I was very grateful for that post, as you can imagine. Um, Pete Wells is a close friend of mine. Um, We worked together at uh, Details Magazine years ago before we were both at the Times. And um, yet he hadn't <laughs> he hadn't tweeted or posted anything about my book all year. So I was kind of like, okay, that's fine. You know, you do you. Um, but then at the very end of the year, um, he, you know, put up that incredibly gracious post about Hungry. And I really felt, and this is no surprise to anyone who knows Pete, but I, I just felt he got it, you know. Actually, there were three things that happened around the end of the year and the beginning of 2020, which is uh, Helen Rosner from The New Yorker uh, put up a nice tweet about Hungry. Pete Wells did that Instagram post, and um, Publishers Weekly named it one of the team's favorite books of 2019. And the, the person who wrote about it at Publishers Weekly Echo sort of said something similar to what Pete Wells said, which is like, this isn't really a book about food. It's actually sort of a book about self-discovery and change. I think that Hungry is about my friendship with connection to Rene Redzepi, who is the chef at Noma in Copenhagen, uh, which a lot of people over the past decade have considered the best restaurant in the world. I mean, that's always debatable. But it's certainly the most influential restaurant of the last decade around the world. I think most chefs would agree with that. Um, I struck up a friendship with Renee about five years ago. Actually, I guess we're coming on six years ago now. It changed my life, which sounds kind of cheesy to say, but it's true. And I think that Renee and I were both at periods in our lives where we needed to shake things up. We wanted to change things. So we sort of dovetailed in 2014. It was kind of a random thing. I met Renee Redzepi for a coffee in downtown Manhattan. And this kind of awkward conversation led to uh, friendship and led to pretty much four years of traveling around together. (laughs) So what did you think when you got that? phone call in 2014 saying, hey, I want to meet with you and chat at a coffee shop in the village. What were you thinking? I felt like I had to do it as an obligation. That sounds really 
lame in a way, but it's true. I was a journalist. I am a journalist. I was a, a reporter at the New York Times on the food section. Uh, and I felt like, well, I ought to do this as part of my job. You know, I mean, this, this person is considered the most influential chef of our time. And obviously, as a reporter, I have to do my due diligence. Right. But I was it, it, he actually reached out to me the very week I had moved out of the house with my first wife and my two older children. It was a very sad period in my life. I was in despair, frankly. And I didn't want to talk to anyone. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Like I, it was, it, it's just so bizarre and serendipitous that Renee happened to reach out to me that very week. Okay. And I was very vulnerable and kind of like just wanted to go home on the train, frankly. So, um, to this little, you know, sad sack bachelor apartment, I, I was renting down the street from my former house. So, you know, most people, if Renee Redzepi reached out, they'd be pretty excited. You know? I wasn't yeah. actually up for it. Um, but as soon as I, I met him in this coffee house, it was like there was a kind of electricity in the air. There are certain people, you know, who give off this intoxicating charisma. And I mean, one thinks of Beyonce, you think of a person like Steve Jobs, you think of people who change the world, you know, and change the course of culture and have this this kind of vibrancy, the, the, almost like you can see the electrons when they enter the room, right? I've heard you say he's a bit Tony Robbins-esque. Yeah, there's a little bit of like, will you walk on coals with me? Within a few minutes, you know, he, we weren't talking about his manifesto. We weren't talking about his new cookbook. He was asking me questions, which I will tell you as a reporter is fairly rare. I mean, people, I've interviewed rock stars and movie stars and film directors and poets and politicians and chefs, it's very rare that they start asking you questions, right? And Rene Redzepi did that. And he, he, was, he was like, oh, you're from L.A. You like tacos? And I was like, dude, yes. Tacos are <laughs> life. Very, very important to me. Yes, tacos are life. I live for tacos. <laughs> um, and, um, and I was like, why, why, why are you asking me about tacos? You know, you're from Denmark. Like, what could you possibly know about that? Uh, I mean, look, you know, I, I, and, and it turned out that he'd had this long term ongoing love affair uh, with Mexico, which was news to me and turned out to be news to most people in the food world. And I'm not talking about he would just, you know, go to Cancun for vacation. I mean, he would spend weeks, if not months in Mexico every year. He was obsessed with the history of the country, the people the food, the ingredients. So he said to me, like, why don't we go on a trip to Mexico together? And I was like, what? <laughs> you, you and me, we just met. You know? That started a series of trips. I didn't intend to write a book originally. It was just um, first for an article. But then I, then I started going to on these trips um, on my own dime just because I found that being around Renee Redzepi and being around the Noma team was kind of, it was kind of changing me. So let's back up and talk about yeah. when, when you landed in Mexico City with Sean Denala, yeah. a photographer, and you were immediately summoned to Pajol. Yeah. Perhaps the best restaurant in Mexico City. And who was sitting at the table with Renee? Uh, Danny Bowen. Yeah. Who is a chef of Mission Chinese Food in New York. And so in crazy. Yeah. That was my first 
sign, Susie, that we were on a bigger adventure than I realized. Because as you see in the book, everywhere Rene Redzepi goes, there's this kind of orbit of other famous chefs, right? Who he's, who he's friends with. So it's sort of like that Bob Dylan movie, the documentary, don't look back like, Oh, Donovan just shows up, you know, <laughs> like, Oh, there's Joan Baez. Like people would just show up all the time, which of course enriched my narrative and our experience. It turned out that Rene Redzepi had become sort of a mentor to Danny Bowen for mission Chinese food. Danny had been through hell because the original New York Mission Chinese food had been shut down by the health department, which was very humiliating and embarrassing. And he, he felt like his whole career was falling apart. And in that moment of fear and weakness, Rene had reached out to him and, and um, you know, kind of rescued him. So uh, in a weird way, Danny and I were in a similar position. Like we were people who had become part of this cult because Rene had reached out to us. So in that room, you have like arguably – you know, the greatest chef in Mexico, Enrique Olvera from Pujol. And then you have Danny Bowen. And then you have Rene Redzepi. We're all at a table together. I mean, Enrique was bringing the food, but we were all hanging out together. Yeah. And there were other famous people in the room as well. It was it was just like, where am I? Have I just landed in the circus? It was like <laughs> it was it was as if there was some incredible documentary about the food world that you were watching. And then suddenly you opened your eyes and you were in the documentary, <laughs> like you were in the middle of it. You know, there's something kind of irresistible about his invitations. Um, and I am not alone in saying yes to them. I mean, many people have been sort of sucked into his orbit in this way. And it always ends up being kind of life changing. So how long did you stay in Mexico? Oh, well, the first time was a week, I guess. Uh, but then I went back many times. Um Basically, as you've seen, like most of the book takes takes place in Mexico, which is maybe a little odd when people pick it up because they think, wait, isn't this a book about a, a Danish chef? You know, why are we in Mexico the whole time? It's because Mexico was sort of the crucible of his transformation and my own, really. And he was building toward this meal, which happened three years after we met. It was called Noma, Mexico. It was a pop up in Tulum. Now, when you hear the words pop up, you know, a lot of people think, so it was one night and they just cooked Noma food in Mexico. No, that's not what this was. This was seven weeks in Tulum. He flew the entire Noma team to Mexico. They spent months looking for the best ingredients, months and really years working and working, working at these recipes. After you came back from Mexico, you wrote the article, and then he called you to Tulum, right? After I, I wrote the article, I figured that was the the end. You know, that's how it is for us journalists. You know, you meet someone, and you you have this kind of fling. <laughs> you know, you meet you meet the individual, and then and then uh, they, they go their merry way. But um, email sort of popped up on my Gmail. It said, uh, "You have a table at Noma." Um, now it's impossible to get a table at Noma. There's like 30,000 people on the wait list on any given night, okay? And I had not asked for one. So it was confusing. I, I, I thought it was a mistake because also the, the table was like a few days later. Like the day, <laughs> it was like lunch at Noma later that week. I, I texted him. I said, um, you know, chef, I think you made a mistake. I, I seem to, I think somebody typed my 
email in by accident, and I, I have a, a table at Noma. And in typical, this is the Tony Robbins quality that Renee has. He basically said, "Take it or leave it," and I was like, "Oh wow, what do you do? Oh, it's a test. Like he's testing my my will to live. Sort of <laughs> like he's he's testing my sense of adventure." And I thought, well, God, I mean, this chance is not going to come again. It's impossible to eat at this restaurant. And it's supposed to be the best restaurant in the world. So you know what? Damn the torpedoes. I just like went on one of those websites where you get a cheap flight. And I found a very cheap flight. It turns out there are a lot. I booked it without attending to logistics first on the home front, shall we say. I just sort of threw myself a curveball. And um, I didn't even know who I would eat with. So it, it was it was um, but it was that's that was the beginning. So then there were all sorts of like texts and invitations. Wait, I mean, that was tell uh, me who you took. <laughs> this seems to be everybody's favorite part of the book. Well, um, I have a funny story. So tell the story uh, first and then I'll tell my funny story. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, well, I asked everyone. I mean, everyone I asked. I, I, I studied with John McPhee. In college, the New Yorker writer, and I asked him because I feel like I owe him. And being John McPhee, he was actually pretty close to to going. I mean, he's in his 80s, but he was like, um, you know, I might, I might just do it. But he couldn't work it out. I asked my brother. I asked my father. I asked um, every wealthy friend I knew, thinking that maybe they could help cover the costs. You know, <laughs> um, and I mean, just being practical. And it turned out that no one could do it. Everybody said no. And it, Susie, it was such, it was so illustrative. Like I really learned a lesson from that. I, like before this, everyone said, oh, wow, you met Renee Redzepi. If you ever get a table at Noma, let me know. I will do anything. I will move mountains. And then crickets. And then, yeah, exactly. Crickets. When you finally get the table, they're like, oh, well, I forgot. My, my son has a soccer practice or, you know, I, I forgot I'm. I have a haircut appointment and I can't change it. I'm not kidding. Like people were saying stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, but this is Noma, dude. So anyway, to answer your question, I ended up going with like a random guy from the office at the New York Times. I I did not. His name is Grant. um, Very talented uh, web designer, very talented um, artistic you know, type guy. And, but I did not know him at all. I mean, I'd like met him once at an office party <laughs> and, and he heard that I had a table and, um, those who pick up hungry, um, this led to a very bizarre comic sequence because Grant didn't exactly show up for the meal. <laughs> he did buy a ticket to Copenhagen. He did, um, agree to, you know, uh, share the meal with me, but he kind of messed up with the timing. He had a very wicked case of jet lag. So um, that was totally unforgettable. (laughs) So I have a funny story. I was at my neighborhood nail salon over Christmas vacation and brought your book to read. Um, while they did my nails and I'm friendly with the gals at the salon and they're always saying, what cookbook are you reading? And they want to talk about recipes. So that day I said, this isn't, there aren't any recipes in this book. It's just a book about a well-known chef. So there was a girl who was getting a pedicure next to me and she goes, I overheard what you were saying. And she said, have you gotten to the part where the guy <laughs> sleeps through the meal at Noma? And I said, no, I just started it. And she goes, that's a really good friend of mine. And now, because of the book, he's known as the guy who slept through the meal at Noma. 
And I was oh, like, wow. oh, poor Grant Gold. <laughs> I feel for him. Yeah. I feel for so I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't. That's amazing that 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 that's satisfying as a writer to hear that. I do. I do feel for him. I mean, I didn't intend to cause him any pain. You know, I like the guy. Um, I really just thought it was amusing that totally. you know, this happens to us, that we accidentally sleep through uh, important events, shall we say. So in terms of thought experiments, you described the sea urchin and hazelnuts, a simple dish. You wrote, yeah. you tasted what it was, and yet you tasted the microtones, the flavors between the visible and the obvious. I'm curious to hear about that. Yeah, thank you for asking that. That's that's really crucial because I think sometimes people hear about Noma, Rene Redzepi's restaurant, or they, they hear about this book, and not all of us will have the opportunity to eat at Noma. So people are confused, a little like bewildered as to why it can be so good. Like what what is so good about the food at this restaurant? I mean, restaurants, you know, I've been to restaurants, restaurants serve good food. What's unique about this? And the way I've described it to people has to do with like things that are delicious that you've never encountered before. People have their favorites like pizza, pasta, sushi, etc. With Noma, you're tasting things that are equally delicious, maybe even more delicious than those favorites. And yet your palate has never encountered them for the most part. It's like if you went into a museum and you saw a painting and the painting was particularly beautiful because it involved colors that you had never seen before. Like, you know, blue, green, red, yellow, etc. What if there were colors in the spectrum that for some reason, because of our DNA, the human eye had never apprehended. And then all of a sudden you could see those colors. Like you would be, your mind would be blown, right? It's the same with the flavors at Noma. It's like they are finding little pathways of flavor, little microtones, as you put it, which are like the notes in between the notes that not only blow you away because they taste so good, but because like it's the first time. So they do that through the foraging. They find all these wild herbs, greens, mushrooms, you know, sea grasses, seaweeds, all sorts of things that you've probably never tasted. Even people in Denmark have never tasted them or didn't even know they were edible through the fermentation. So they have a whole fermentation lab at Noma that goes beyond what you'd find at almost any restaurant. You know how people will say stuff like human beings only use 10% of their brains or 20% of their brains? Um, I think in part what the Noma enterprise is arguing is that we only use 10% of our palates. When thinking about Renee, I was wondering if you can be a perfectionist if you're restless. I think he managed manages to be both restless and a perfectionist. It's just that his definition of perfection keeps changing. <laughs> oh. You know, so like he achieves huh. perfection and then he blows it up. As soon as he achieves perfection, he's he's bored with it. Um so He's not interested, you know, he's the opposite of a lot of the food artisans you find in Japan, for instance. People, you know, who simply, like Jiro, of course, who's famous from the documentary, making sushi day after day for decades, getting better and better and better with each passing meal. You know, um, Rene is different than that. He, he, um, 
he likes to create a whole menu. And at the moment he feels it's achieved perfection, it's achieved radiance. It's just what he wants to express. He's done. It's like he actually will, will blow it up at that point. So this means that the team has to create something like, you know, hundreds of new dishes every year, hundreds. It's an impossible task. So, and each time, you know, Renee wants that menu to be uh, an example of perfection to answer your question. So the challenge there is just extraordinary. This is one reason I was drawn to the guy. Like I'd never met anyone like that. He's not, he could have just coasted. He could have just said, okay, we've got the perfect Noma menu. We're done. Let's just keep serving this for 40 years. But no, he, he just blows the thing up like every three months. <laughs> so speaking of perfection, you wrote in the book, moles are all negotiation, but tortillas are non-negotiable. You never saw Redzepi master a tortilla. The whole female population of Mexico has mastered the tortilla. How come he couldn't? <laughs> yeah, that was so interesting to me. That was like, because we went to Mexico many times, and I, I would see Renee try um, at the Comal uh, to create a perfect tortilla. And, you know, tortillas are very simple. You have the masa dough, and it's a matter of, um, I'm patting my hands right now. It's a matter of patting them correctly in your hands, the right uh, texture, the right density, etc. And um, for cultural reasons, historical reasons, Throughout much of Mexico, I'm sure Diana Kennedy would tell you, the women make the tortillas. It's a cultural thing. The more traditional the village, the more likely it is that the men never even touch the masa. So um, there are many men in Mexico who can't really make a good tortilla. But Rene being Rene and the greatest chef in the world, etc., I sort of thought, well, he'll figure it out. But he never did. It, it's really like – it's really about dexterity – and it's kind of about muscle memory, you know, and many of these women have been doing it since they were little girls and they just become second nature. They just become very natural at it. And I mean, at this one, in this one village in, in, on the Yucatan Peninsula, this Mayan village called uh, Yaksuna, I mean, I couldn't believe the deliciousness of the tortillas, just just absolutely perfect. And they're using local corn, um, the, you know, these kind of heritage strains of corn that are from the region. It was it, it was actually a point of um, slight friction between me and Renee because I'm not a chef. I'm as my kids would say, I'm not even a very good cook. But um, I could master the tortillas. I actually what? made what really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we were in Yaksuna, he got a little annoyed with me because he said, "Well, why don't you give it a try, you know, L.A. boy?" And I and I I did. I grabbed some masa and I just patted it in my hand. I put it on the comal. And instantly it started puffing up, which is a sign that you made it right. <laughs> and and the, the women of the village were all kind of cheering for me. Like oh, they were kind of surprised God. that I was able to do it. And I was like, wow, amazing. I did something better than the greatest chef in the world. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. I mean, Danny Bowen never got it either. I mean, and so he, he you know, when we went to Oaxaca, he kept trying to figure it out. And he never, he never really could nail the tortillas either. I have a picture on my phone of Danny Bowen and Renee Redzepi at a Comal in Oaxaca with all these Mexican ladies sort of surrounding them as they, <laughs> it's actually a series of photos as they try to figure it out and their tortillas look terrible. <laughs> <laughs> they're all clumpy, you know, they're uneven, they're not puffing up. 
<laughs> so funny. So, so by the end of the book, I realized that this journey coincided, and this isn't funny, with the breakdown of your marriage. And it felt to yeah. me like you and Renee were meant to travel this bumpy road together and come out learning to, as you wrote, keep moving because it's the only way. That's sort of Renee Redzepi's philosophy um, is just keep moving. Um, <clears throat> you know, that to get back to, to your first question when you were talking about resolutions, we always feel life can be better than that. There must be something I'm doing wrong. What can I do differently? You know, how do I live the optimum life? How do I create everything I want to create and love people the way I want to, you know, love them? The way, how, do we, how do I be a better dad, a better partner, a better friend? And we never really get the moment to sit and think about that. The Buddhists have this concept of samsara, samsara, which is like this cycle that we're trapped in, you know, where we keep gnawing on the past and we keep making the same mistakes. And we're almost like in a Mobius strip, like this feedback loop that we feel we can't get out of. I felt that way when I met Renee Redzepi. I felt that way because of my marriage coming apart. And I was in that point of drift and malaise that sometimes we get, we get into, we get caught in. I felt intoxicated by this philosophy of Renee's, which is just like, just keep changing and keep moving and keep seeking out new experiences and keep learning. And it will kind of shake you out of this rut. He was right. And that's what happened. Oh, God, I feel weird saying this, but I, I sometimes feel when I'm doing something or I'm thinking about the next steps in my life, I hear a little Renee Redzepi voice in the back of my head saying, like, take the chance. You know, <laughs> risk is good. Change is good. Jump off the cliff. Do it. <laughs> I don't know if that's the, the angel voice or the devil voice, but it's always saying that we have to embrace change. Now to my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. What is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? Um, my all-time favorite cookbook is one that I anticipate a lot of your listeners and a lot of your guests would, would also uh, name. It's The Art of Simple Food by Alice Waters. No one's named that yet. That's crazy. But <laughs> that surprises me. But you're the first. Really? I swear. Well, okay. Well, I mean, Alice Waters is a goddess, of course, and I'm a Californian, so I have that kind of built-in produce worship that a lot of West Coasters have. And um, if that's where you're coming from, then Alice Waters is sort of your queen, of course. But I mean, to me, I actually have the book here, and it's like all I have to do is float through the table of contents and I start to feel this sense of warmth. Like I start to feel comfortable and at home and ready for dinner <laughs> just from looking at the table of contents. Like it's just, you know, it's the art of simple food. So there's this simplicity even in the way each section is listed. Like I, I often write about these fine dining places. It's part of my job at Esquire magazine. And, you know, I admire what the chefs do at those Michelin starred spots. But in my heart of hearts, when I'm at home, whether it's, you know, at my parents' home in Laguna Beach or it's 
at home here in the Hudson Valley, this is what I want to cook and this is what I want to eat. You know, like it gets back to the basics. Where can we find you on the web and social media? The best place to find me is on Instagram. I'm known as the Gordonier on Instagram, or I guess we would say the Gordonier. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah, no, we, no, we, just the Gordonier. So um, the best place to look for me is on Instagram. Well, thanks, Jeff, for telling this incredible story. And thanks so much for chatting with me on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thanks so much, Susie. It has been fun and it has been an honor. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.